You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. in the Old Testament, and we're going to go through and we're going to see how what the Bible teaches is that there is going to be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked, at the end, and everybody gets a body. And we're going to see how that plays out. So we're going to start with the very first reference to bodily resurrection, chronologically, the very first reference, and we'll end up in Revelation 20, hopefully if we can get through all of this before we're done. Uh, does anybody know what the first book of the Bible written was? Job, right? And Job was not the, Job doesn't chronicle obviously the first things that happened. That would be Genesis. But Job was written, most, some people think right after the flood, shortly after the flood, that Noah, Noah and Job may have been contemporaries. Um, some people think that Job was written before the flood and that the book of Job came across with Noah on the ark. Whether you believe it's before the flood or after the flood, I'm fine if as long as you understand that Job was the first book of the Bible that was written. So turn in the, Book of Job. Yes. Oh, the righteous sufferer. Yeah, the Steve said he heard that Job was written kind of about the same time as Ecclesiastes by Solomon, or about Solomon's time, because it has a similar type of theme as Solomon would have. Um, you can only carry that line of reasoning so far, because obviously, just because a book has the same type of theme as another book doesn't mean that they were written at the same time. Job has all the indications of a patriarchal uh, system that was similar to Abraham and even Noah's time. It has all of the indications of being a very, very ancient book because of the way that animals are spoken of and people's wealth is spoken of and all of that. If Job, and I believe Job was a very early book, Job does a good job of showing us that this issue of how why the righteous suffer is not something that came up in Solomon's day. It's something that is ancient, goes back even to before the flood, which... I think is probably when it was written. Um, it is an ancient issue. Why do the righteous suffer? So the book of Job, chapter... I'm in the book of Proverbs. Job chapter 19. Now the context, obviously, of Job is Job is suffering. He's righteous and he's suffering. He knows that he's righteous. He knows he hasn't done anything to deserve the suffering. His suffering is not a result of his personal sin. Job believes that in his heart. He cannot think. He's examined himself. He cannot think of anything that he's done which might warrant the suffering that he's enduring. And so Job is asking those questions and and working that through in his own mind and show up on the scene are his three friends who offer Job nothing but miserable counsel and horrible comfort, if you can call it comfort at all, who are constantly accusing Job and saying, it's because of your sin that you're suffering. It's because of your sin because of your sin, and Job keeps saying, vindicating himself. And eventually we get to, in Job chapter 19, his own looking to God for his vindication. And that's where we're at in Job chapter 19, verse 25. Back it up to verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and a lead they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. It's the most ancient book, and there's two, actually, two doctrines that you see there that are later developed all the way through the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Two primary doctrines. One is the bodily resurrection. You see it in verse 26. But what doctrine is stated in verse 25? Can you see it? As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will take his stand on the earth. Who is Job's Redeemer? Who does he mean by that? Right, we know it's Christ, but he is looking. He, he wouldn't know anything about Jesus Christ, but he would be looking to his Redeemer who is his God, right? He's looking, his faith is in God, whom he says will what? Someone someday take his stand on the earth. Now, that's an incredible insight for a man who's writing about the time of the flood. See, we often look back to the people who lived around the time of the flood, before the flood, right after the flood, and we think, well, poor them. They didn't have very much insight. 
very much spiritual understanding, very much revelation. I would argue that Job has had a tremendous amount of revelation. Now, if he had stuff that was written for him, inspired scriptures for him that God has not preserved for us, I don't know. If he got this by revelation, I don't know. If there was tradition that was handed down from Adam, I don't know. But Job understood two things. He understood that someday his Redeemer would take his stand on the earth in physical form. And he also understood that someday he would behold or look on that Redeemer with his very own eyes. But look at Job's expression of confidence, even after my skin is destroyed. He's speaking of his physical skin. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Now, how is that possible? New flesh, right? It's only if Job understood and was looking forward to a time after his skin was destroyed that he himself would stand in the flesh and look upon his Redeemer on the earth. Now, Job's looking forward 4,000 years or more. He has that insight to know that someday my Redeemer will stand and I will see him with my eyes, though not these eyes, but my eyes nonetheless, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. So Job knew that after his skin was destroyed, after his flesh was destroyed, he would yet see his Redeemer with his own eyes. That is a statement of his confidence in the bodily resurrection. Now, it's in seed form, and we have to keep in mind that we, there is a doctrine, there is a principle in throughout Scripture called progressive revelation. Later revelation always clarifies earlier revelation. So if you look back to the earliest writings, you see doctrines in their seed forms. You see statements that aren't fully explained until later. Look in the Old Testament, for instance, you see the doctrine of the Trinity implied, sometimes stated, in sort of a mysterious, enigmatic way. But then in the New Testament, we see the doctrine of the Trinity fleshed out in its full glory. So that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing a statement of Job's confidence in a future resurrection and even a bodily resurrection that he would see his Redeemer on the earth with his own eyes. That is a statement in bodily resurrection. Any questions on that before we move on? My suspicion is that since he's talking about his own resurrection, that he's speaking of his own body, my own eyes, and not another. Sort of a poetic way of saying, um, my eyes and, and my eyes will see it. And sort of an emphasis of that it's going to be he himself that sees this. Now, is, is that, when is that going to happen, by the way? When will that be fulfilled? When will Job stand on this earth in his flesh and see his Redeemer? In the millennium, right? right? Right after the righteous are resurrected, all the Old Testament righteous saints are resurrected, resurrected, and they enter into the glory of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth. And Job will then, in his flesh, see his Redeemer on this earth. And Job knew that even way back then. That's, that's amazing to me, the amount of insight that he had. Okay, next one is in Psalm 16. Psalm 16. It's going to seem like we're going quickly, but we could take any one of these texts and kind of develop it for a whole Sunday school lesson if we wanted to, but that's not the intention today. The intention is today is to kind of do a, a flyover of all of these passages that deal with bodily resurrection. And I, I should clarify, it's not all of them. I'm really picking some of the most significant ones that are the most straightforward. Psalm 16, now this is going to be a familiar psalm, it's written by David, and as we read through this, you'll probably, you'll probably It'll sound familiar to you. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no God beside, no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied, and I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, and indeed my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Now, verse 10 throws sort of a loop into the psalm. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Do you have any idea why that would sound familiar? First of all, does it sound familiar to you? David's did. Yeah, keep your finger there. 
and turn over quickly to Acts chapter 2. And we looked at this in the newsletter article. I don't know if anybody reads those. Sometimes I think I maybe write those just for my own sake. But we talked about this in the newsletter article. We made this connection. Psalm 16 is quoted in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 13 because both of the apostles, the primary apostles, Peter and Paul, both used Acts 16 to prove that the Messiah had to. Had to. It was necessary that the Messiah rise from the dead. So Acts chapter 2, this is Peter on the day of Pentecost. He says in verse 23 that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope. Now, he's quoting here from Psalm 16. Peter's paraphrasing, probably from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So Peter is paraphrasing, but it's obviously that he's paraphrasing and quoting from Psalm 16. Verse 27, Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now look look what Peter says. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. His body did see decay, right? So Peter says, And so because he was a prophet, and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he, that is Christ, was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. So that's how Peter uses that. Psalm 16 to show that Peter was looking forward to Christ and saying, Peter was speaking prophetically of him being the one that would not suffer decay, that would not rot in the grave. Now back to Psalm 16. Verse 10 obviously can't refer to Peter, right? Because Peter died and he did suffer decay. Or... Is it possible that verse 10 does in some way refer to, sorry, not Peter, David? I get these smirks every once in a while, and then I start playing the tape back in my mind, thinking I must have said something wrong. It, 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 it is obviously not referring entirely to David, because David did suffer decay. But is it possible that verse 10 in some way does refer to David? And if it does refer to David, then what is it making reference to? Bodily resurrection. See, David was looking beyond the grave for himself. And David was looking forward not only just to the resurrection of Christ, but to the reality that David believed, like Job, that God would raise up his body again. And that body will not suffer death or decay, because it will be a glorified body, never to die again. So Psalm 16 is David's prophetic statement. He can only say this if he believed in bodily resurrection. That's behind Psalm 16. Any questions about that one before we move on? No? Everybody following me or are you already fully asleep again? Okay, Daniel chapter 12. Actually, I skipped one there. Uh, Isaiah, since we're doing it chronologically. Isaiah chapter 26. You know, Isaiah is speaking in the context of national Israel, and he's, he's giving some prophecies concerning Israel as a nation. And so he says in verse, oh, see, so where do we want to pick this up? Let's just look at verse 19. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise, and you who lie in the dust awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. And now there's Isaiah, and like I say, these are not, these are sort of enigmatic statements in that they have a mysterious element to it, and they're not all that clear, though the Old Testament saints did understand there would be a resurrection, there would be a bodily resurrection, and Isaiah now puts it in sort of a prophetic way, a very poetic way. Verse 19, your dead will live. Now in one sense, he is speaking of the nation itself, but there would be a resurrection of the nation, the nation itself will live because they were facing captivity, they were facing judgment for all of their sin, and they were at a point where, by Isaiah's day, the Davidic kingdom had basically deteriorated to the point where it almost was no more. And so you get into the later prophets uh, right before the Babylonian captivity, which is Jeremiah 
and Isaiah and um, even Ezekiel, though Ezekiel was sort of a mid-post-exilic prophet, the whole nation had deteriorated to a point where if you were the average Jew walking around the street, you would have said to yourself, look, hundreds of years ago, we got a prophecy, we got a promise that God would do this for the nation. We haven't seen this come to pass. And since the days of David, when God made that statement, our nation has done nothing but go totally downhill to the point where it is almost impossible to even conceive how it is that God could put a son of David on his throne and that that son of David would rule over all of the nations. In David's day, that seemed like the next thing, right? David's kingdom had expanded to the point where he was at peace with everybody around him. So when God gives the promise to David, the kingdom will be established and your son will rule over it. One of your sons will rule over it. It seemed David's son, the next one born, maybe he's going to be the one to finally conquer all the nations and just sort of take that final step. But after the time of David, it just deteriorated to the point where everybody wondered, is this even possible for the nation to ever experience that glory again? So in steps Isaiah and other prophets like Ezekiel who prophesy of this coming restoration, this coming resurrection of the entire nation. But when the nation of Israel is resurrected, it will not just be the nation of Israel itself. There will be individual resurrections. So this resurrection that Isaiah is speaking of here, the resurrection of the righteous, will take place right prior to the millennium. That's the promise. Not only will the nation itself experience a resurrection, it will be something that it is not now, but individually, the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. There will be a resurrection of the just, of the righteous, prior to the Davidic kingdom and David's son sitting on the throne. That's what verse 19 is about. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. That's bodily resurrection. Their corpses will rise. What's going to happen to David and Abraham and Noah and all the Old Testament righteous saints? What's going to happen to them? That's the promise. Their corpses will rise. They will rise from the dead and experience the glory of the coming kingdom that Isaiah describes. I think that they would have been people probably who died rather recently. I just got this question some other time. Was it in this class or was it somewhere else? Was it in this class? It was a membership class. That's what it was. Yeah, somebody asked that in the membership class. That's a good question. I think that the the people who were resurrected were not resurrected in the glorious form that Christ was. Nobody received a glorified body before Jesus did. That's why he was the first fruit. So it wasn't the glorified body resurrection, probably a resurrection similar to what Lazarus experienced. Some people who had died recently, I think, probably a recent death, experienced a resurrection. They came out of the tombs. They walked around, testified, and eventually they would have died again, just like Lazarus died twice. That's how I would take it. Okay, any other questions on Isaiah before we move on? Okay, Steve. With verses like this in Isaiah, how is it Well, the Sadducees, the question is, why did the Sadducees deny bodily resurrection? The Sadducees only accepted the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Everything else they did not accept as inspired scripture. So when you cut and paste your Bible and you accept only what you want to accept, it's really easy to deny the things that don't quite comport with your theology, which is why when Jesus confronted the Sadducees, he didn't quote from Isaiah or Daniel or the Psalms. What did he quote from? Have you not heard... Or you don't understand the resurrection? And then Jesus said, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he quoted Exodus chapter 3, which should have been sufficient to prove to a Sadducee that there is a bodily resurrection because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Enoch? I don't know what the Sadducees would have believed about Enoch. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Jesus was um, Jesus was brilliant that way in in when he had a confrontation. You see this in the Gospel of John over and over again with his confrontation with the religious leaders. Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders was always on their turf. He always he always quoted things that were he always entered into the fray with them in the stuff that they would accept as true. Um, it's the same thing when, when I talk with a Mormon. I am happy to use the King James Version of the Bible if they want and meet them on their turf with their theology. I'm happy to do that because I, I believe that when a, a worldview is inconsistent like that, you can use their own worldview to trip them up. Yeah, good observation. 
Daniel chapter 12. Let's move on to Daniel chapter 12. I think we're going to get into the thick of questions here when we get into the New Testament. So we're just looking at these seed doctrines in the Old Testament. Now at that time, this is Daniel chapter 12, beginning of verse 1. This is a prophecy concerning what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. Daniel's already described the beast. He's already described the activities of the beast. He's the Antichrist. He's described all of that, this time of immense persecution in the nation of Israel, a time of immense tribulation for the nation of Israel. Verse 12, Now at that time, Michael the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, that's the Israelites, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So the, the preservation of the nation of Israel during this time of tremendous tribulation is going to be due to the activity of Michael the archangel, who himself will work to preserve the nation of Israel. Verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Asleep is a metaphor for death. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, we looked at Job, we looked at Psalm 16, we looked at Isaiah. There's a new piece of information that's introduced in the book of Daniel, chapter 12. What is it? Do you notice it? What's that? Right, resurrection to judgment. Now, that was absent in Psalm 16, absent in Job, absent in Isaiah. It's not that those men didn't believe in that, but we're seeing this progressive revelation. Now, in the book of Daniel, at the end of the captivity, there's a a reference not only to the resurrection of the righteous, but also to the resurrection of judgment. Some will raise to everlasting life. Others will be raised, same word, resurrection to everlasting contempt. So now we are introduced to this idea that there is two different types of revelations. We're not seeing yet that the revelations are separate, separated in time, but we just are understanding that both the righteous and the wicked experience a, a resurrection. They are resurrected. Any questions about that? Yeah, Jen. Yeah, and I was kicking that around when I was preparing this as well. My only, my only hesitation, here's my thoughts on the, the many and why it doesn't, why it doesn't say all of those who sleep in the dust. It may be that Daniel was looking forward to looking at a certain aspect of the first resurrection. Because the first resurrection, which is the resurrection to life, the resurrection of the righteous, that doesn't all take place at one time. So it may be that Daniel is looking at or foreseeing, um, maybe by many he means all, but maybe by many he means that there are two distinct resurrections and Daniel was seeing them or understanding them as taking place in chunks. And so he wasn't necessarily describing all, but he was describing many as being part of one of these resurrections. I don't know if that makes sense. That's the only way I can kind of, kind of, can, kind of put that together in my mind. Because we will find later out that it's all, all who have ever lived are resurrected. Right. Yeah. He could have been looking at the first resurrection, which takes not all the, not all of the righteous are resurrected at the same time. There is an order to the resurrection, which we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15. Dave. The, I think, I believe it refers to the end of the tribulation. After the Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel, yeah, and then all of the wrath of God is poured out during that time of Jacob's trouble, that last three and a half years. Okay, turn to the, where are we at now? I'm not even in my notes. John chapter 5. And once again, we're, I know we are skipping over some some passages that teach the bodily resurrection. John chapter 5. It'll be kind of a little bit before we get to the book of John, and then we'll cover this in greater detail even than we're covering it here. John chapter 5, beginning verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. So there's the word all. All will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, 
and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There you have the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous as well. And here is an additional piece of information that Jesus himself is going to be the one who is the resurrector. He's going to be the one who gives the command, and at his statement, all of the dead will rise. Some to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of everlasting contempt. But everybody gets a body. Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 24, verse 15. This is Paul before Felix giving his testimony. And of course, he's been charged with crimes of sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Do you remember that from the book of Acts? No, Jim, you're the only one that remembers that because you preached it. Acts chapter 24, verse 14, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that's in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets. And what is it that Paul says was in accordance with the law and the prophets? Now, maybe by the law he meant the statement that Jesus quoted, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that Jacob and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had not ceased to exist, that they were alive and that there would be a resurrection. Maybe he meant that. Maybe he meant a different passage. But Paul says, everything that's in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that is the Pharisees. We agree on this, Paul says, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That was what Paul and the Pharisees agreed on. Do you remember back in, it was in chapter 23 at the trial, when they had the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the room and they were all accusing Paul? And they brought those charges against him. And then Paul discerned that half the room was Pharisees and half the room was Sadducees. And he said in uh, verse 6, I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And instantly all the attention was taken off of Paul. And the Pharisees started arguing with the Sadducees. And the Sadducees started arguing with the Pharisees. That was just a brilliant strategic decision for Paul to say that. All of a sudden, all the Pharisees were saying, hey, this guy can't be that bad after all. I mean, he believes in the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. That's what we believe. We have to defend him. If he's on trial for the resurrection, then he's our ally against the guys who are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees now realize that they didn't have just one guy, Paul, who was their enemy, but they had half a room, which was full of Pharisees that were also their enemies. And it was all about the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. And Paul kept that, and you see it through the book of Acts, he kept that as the central theme of his message and why he was on trial. He kept going back to it every time he was accused. Every time he was on trial, he kept coming back to the resurrection. And he kept saying, I'm on trial for this because I preached the bodily resurrection. Well, he was preaching Christ as having risen from the dead. But Paul's hope was that because Christ was risen, he would also rise. And because he believed that, he was persecuted. Because it went back to the resurrection of Christ. So there you have it in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, verse 15. These men also cherish themselves. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you had to know that we would land in that before we were done. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now we're, we're a little bit out chronologically because if you remember from the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians was written during Acts chapter 19. So we just went to Acts 24. So now we're written, right, reading something that was written before Acts 24. So we're a little, we're sort of now in a logical order instead of a chronological order. Acts, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning of verse 12. Oh, I wish I had time to just go through. I am really looking forward to the day when I get to preach through all of 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter. I mean, I read through here, every time I read through here, I think there's a year's worth of sermons in 1 Corinthians 15, because this is just, I think, one of the richest, most enjoyable passages in all my New Testament. And I and lament that I have to give it such cursory treatment this morning. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, verse 12, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, and notice he's not just talking about there, about Christ's specific resurrection, but the doctrine itself of resurrection of the dead, which the Greeks denied, by the way. The Gentiles, the Greeks, the Greek mind of thought, they denied a physical resurrection. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we're found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Notice verse 20, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only. That sentence only makes sense if Paul believed in a bodily resurrection for himself, right? Paul's hope for a bodily resurrection 
rested upon the reality of Christ's resurrection. If Christ is not risen, then the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, then there's no resurrection for us. And if there's no resurrection for us, then what is our hope? Now, a Greek, a Gentile would answer that and say, well, our hope is liberation from the body. Is that a Christian idea? I want to be liberated from my body and I want to spend eternity in a phantom type spiritual bodiless state. Is that the Christian, is that a Christian viewpoint? No. Well, Paul says, I think in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I, I long to be clothed. Right? It is unnatural for us to be unclothed, to be out of a body. That's not a natural state. That's not a glorious eternal state. God created us. We are, we are created to be connected to the physical, and we will spend all of eternity in physical bodies. We are created as physical creatures, and we will dwell for all of eternity in a physical body. Physical, not passing through walls, a physical body. It's going to be more physical than this body, if that's even possible to imagine. Not less so, more so, because it's going to be gloriously physical. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15. Now we get in verse 20 to the order of the resurrection, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. First fruits being kind of like a precursor or just sort of a deposit on those who have fallen asleep. Did you have a question back there? No. Okay. It has to do with passing through walls, doesn't it? Okay. No, he, he was in a physical body. I just don't believe he walked through a wall. But we, we get, maybe we'll get to that at the end if we have time. See, that, it says he appeared in the midst of them. It doesn't say he passed through a wall. We make that logical jump that he had to walk through a wall. Why did he have to walk through a wall? Why can't he just appear in the midst of them? Yeah, he could. I guess he could unlock the door and walk through if he wanted to, <laughs> since he's God. So I just think it's, a, I think it's a misnomer to suggest that our physical bodies, our resurrection bodies, will be able to pass through physical objects. I don't see anything in Scripture that teaches that. That's not a physical body. It will be able to, now this gets into, oh man. So, okay, we will get to it in, in the book of John, I promise that. Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since man, uh, death came by man, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That is, all who are in Christ will be made alive. That's speaking of the first resurrection. And Paul here is describing not the resurrection of the wicked. He's describing here his emphasis on the resurrection of the righteous, right? What hope do we have? He's speaking to Christians. Our hope is in the physical resurrection of the righteous. So he's not describing the resurrection of the wicked, but the resurrection of the righteous. That's why he says, in Christ, all who are in Christ will be made alive. That is the resurrection of the righteous. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put into subjection, it's evident he has accepted him who put all things into subjection to him. That's the Father. And when all things are subjected to him, that is Christ, then the Son also will be subjected to the one that's God the Father who subjected all things to him, that is Christ, so that God may be all in all. So the idea is he reigns till he puts everything under his feet, and then when he has subdued all of his enemies, death being the last one, he hands everything over back to the Father who gave it back, who gave it to Christ to begin with. The kingdom and everything. So that everything becomes God's. We, the resurrection of the righteous, we become God's. Christ says, I have done your will. I have put all enemies under my feet. Here is everything you have given to me, Father, I give it back to you. And it becomes the Father's. Everything that was given to him subjected everything to Christ to begin with. What's that? Yeah, yours were the sermons right there. Verse, um, okay, verse 29. I don't want to get into that because that's a, a difficult one. Why are people baptized for the dead? Okay, verse 35. Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? That's what we want to know, right? What kind of a body is it that I get? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh. See, we have a spiritual flesh that will be our flesh in the resurrected body. It will be different than this. And see, I don't believe that unless Christ is willing that 
physical eyes can see a glorified spiritual body. So if there's a glorified spiritual body right here, I don't believe that we'd be able to see it unless he willed it to be so, which is how I think he simply appeared in the midst. He is not bound by this dimension, this time, and this space. This is a different type of physicality than he had. His is a real physicality, but it's, it's, this is just the shadowlands, as it were, of what is really real. And so he is able to appear simply in the midst of us without walking through a wall because he wills to make himself visible right here in this time-space continuum, which is nothing to what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. This is just a shadow of that. Verse... No, no, I don't believe that it coexists right here in another dimension. I believe that Christ had his resurrected spiritual, physical body right here on earth, and that this, we were unable to see that because we cannot see things that exist in that realm, even though they be physical things, unless the Father or unless God wills it us to be able to see it. Um, it's, it's simply another dimension. It's another, it's another type of being entirely. It's another dimension that we just simply can't even apprehend, even though it is a physical thing. He was in his glorified, resurrected body, the body that ours will be created in likeness of. Al. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I believe that that is a very real uh, spiritual presence. He could be. Yeah. Right. And, and it's a, it's in math, that's in Matthew 18. It's a, it's a, the real spiritual power and presence of Christ in his church that's being described there. So right now, physically, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where his glorified body is. But as God, he's present everywhere. Spiritually, he's omnipresent. But he is at the same time physically located in heaven right now in another dimension entirely that we just don't even have access to. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, verse 42. Let's jump down to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body. That's this body. And it's raised an imperishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. But you notice in all of those references, it is a body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. That is, Christ gives life, physical life, to all those who are in him. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As in the earth, so are those who are earthly, and as in the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And Paul there is just arguing every conceivable way that, look, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, and we will be raised, and we will get a body. It will be a spiritual body, a powerful body, a glorious body, but it will be a body nonetheless. Um, now, let's move on to the order of this resurrection. How, what does this resurrection look like? When is it going to happen, and how is this going to happen? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And actually, keep your fingers in 1 Corinthians 15, because we're going to zip back there one more time before we're done. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're obviously out of chronological order there as well because 1 Thessalonians was written before 1 Corinthians 2. Remember that from the book of Acts? No. 1 Thessalonians. Yeah, you you do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who are dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Now we're getting all kinds of new information here, right? In First Thessalonians. We're getting here the order of resurrection, who we're going to be resurrected with, who this involves. And now we have the shout of the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So this refers to a resurrection 
the resurrection of the righteous, those who are dead in Christ. It is what we call the rapture. The rapture is basically an English form of a Latin term which came from the Greek word which is meant to snatch away or to be taken away. Now back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's the same event that's described beginning in verse 15. Flesh and blood, or 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Now, I believe that Paul expected that this was possible in his own lifetime for this resurrection to take place. So he describes those who have fallen asleep in Jesus and he says basically this, when the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised imperishable and here's how it's going to go. We're not going to be snatched away to heaven before those who have gone before us and fallen asleep. In the twinkling of an eye, almost instantaneously, this is what's going to happen. The dead in Christ will be raised in their spiritual bodies and we will instantaneously be changed from perishable into imperishable. And all of us together, all the saints who have come before, who are Christ, since the day of Pentecost, who have died in him, will be snatched up together to meet the Lord in the air. That is part of the first resurrection. Now, there's an order to the resurrection. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20? First Christ, then those who are Christ's get raised. There's an order to these things. Now, we know that this first resurrection, the resurrection to life, takes place in phases. Christ was the first fruits of that. It's been almost 2,000 years since that happened. So we know that this resurrection now that takes place with all of us together who go up to meet the Lord in the air, those who are dead in Christ, and all believers, the whole church together, since the day of Pentecost till the day of the rapture, are snatched up together and instantly transformed. Everybody gets their glorified bodies, and we go up to meet the Lord in heaven. Now, is it possible for physical beings to be in heaven right now? No, not in these bodies, but are there, is it, is, is heaven capable of housing or being home to a physical body? Yeah, there you go. Jesus is there in his resurrected body, right? So I know that there's at least one man in a body right now in heaven. Well, I don't want to get into revelation as to who the identity of those saints are, but they could be transformed in that. Okay, let's not get into Revelation. Just let's, <laughs> let's just concentrate. I don't want to do an overview of the whole book of Revelation. Let's just concentrate on this. It is possible for heaven right now to have a, spirit, a physical body, right? A glorified physical body. Enoch. It's possible that Enoch was transformed right then. I believe it's also possible since Scripture doesn't say that Enoch right now in heaven has the same body that he had here on earth. There's nothing that I know about heaven that... But my only thing about that is if, if this flesh and blood cannot inherit that heaven, then I'm tempted to not say that because my temptation would be then that Enoch, his body simply went away. Now, I don't know how that happened because this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but Enoch could not have gotten a glorified physical body yet because Christ is the first fruits. He was the first one to get that. So Enoch couldn't have had a glorified physical body. Well, it wasn't the first to be resurrected because Lazarus was resurrected and there were other resurrections before Jesus. So since Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is describing the glorified body, Christ being the first fruits of that, then my argument would be Christ glorified, Christ was the first one raised in a glorified physical body. So Enoch didn't have that. Well, there would certainly be the death of this physical body, this physical existence, but it would be an instant trans, transfiguration. Of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, the, I think the general principle of Scripture is that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. But at the rapture, at the resurrection, that is something that is that is unique. It's a it's a different issue. But you're having people who are instantly transformed from perishable to imperishable and are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. So the rapture takes us up in glorified physical bodies, this resurrection of the just, into heaven where we will be in our glorified physical body with Christ who is in his glorified physical body. Katie? Yeah, and I'm not going to get into that right now because... 
I do want to get to the end of this, Marilyn. They're absent from this body, but they are present with the Lord. And I think there are two, there are two options that, here's the question. In what form are the dead right now? Those who have gone on before us. Are they in heaven in a physical body? Or are they in heaven in a spiritual form? I am inclined to say they are in heaven in a spiritual form. But Paul says something interesting in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where he says it's not, we do not want to be unclothed. That's the unnatural state. So I think it's possible that right now, possible in some sort of a spiritual body of some sort, that those who have gone on before have a temporary body in which they now inhabit heaven. And that's possible. But I lean toward the idea that they are there in, in, in a spiritual form. Their souls are there. They would manifest themselves, obviously, in some sort of a visible manifestation. They have some sort of a form. They're not just a spread out spirit like we have air here. They would be together as in some sort of a manifestation. A spiritual body or a, a spiritual entity, I don't know. Yeah. Right, and that's an, that's an unbiblical doctrine. Soul sleep, where the dead don't know anything until the first resurrection. Because he asked them with the bodies to be present with the Lord. But what, in what form? In a physical body of some sort? Or some sort of a body, a body given to us until we get our resurrected body? I think that's possible. Rob. Yeah, I don't know how. Yeah. See, I believe that the saints in heaven experience time. I don't know if they experience time the same way that we do. There has to be time in heaven. It's different. Yeah, they're there and we're not. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 15 describes the physical bodies, and let's move because I do want to. I do want. No, let's go. First, uh, Revelation chapter. Okay, I'm going to skip Philippians chapter three, verse twenty. Turn to Revelation chapter twenty right now. Philippians verse three, verse twenty says, "Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory." by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And there it is, Jesus said to be the one who will transform this body of our humble state just into conformity to his glorious body. Revelation chapter 20. And as we progress, remember we're having different information added to our doctrine of the resurrection. Man, I just have barely enough time to pray. Okay, what? Revelation 20, beginning at verse 1. I saw an angel come down out of heaven, holding the chains to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, that Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and shut it up and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they who sat on them. Now, prior to this is the rapture. So every all the saints from the day of Pentecost all the way through to the day of the rapture have already gone to, to heaven to be with the Lord when it's the snatching up. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then I saw the thrones, and they who sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, that is, during that tribulation, or that period of time after the rapture. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image or received the mark on their forehead or on their right hand, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the resurrection of everybody who died during the tribulation, who believed on Christ, and this is the resurrection of all the Old Testament saints who reign with the Messiah in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy, stating that that was what was going to happen. That's what all the Old Testament saints looked forward to. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Who are the rest of the dead? Everything so far has been the resurrection of the righteous, right? Every All of this is the first resurrection. Christ in his first fruits, then those who are Christ at his coming, and now you have the resurrection of all the Old Testament saints. This is the resurrection of life. Only two resurrections, the resurrection of life and the resurrection of death. The resurrection to everlasting life, the resurrection to judgment. Who gets the, the resurrection of life takes place in different phases. Christ first, those who are Christ, then the Old Testament saints. Now we look at the resurrection of the unrighteous. Verse 11. 
I saw a great right throne, and who sat upon it, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire." Verse 6 of chapter 20. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. How many resurrections? Two. The resurrection of the righteous. That's the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is everyone who takes part in that resurrection. Whether it is at the rapture or whether it is after the tribulation, after the rapture, as part of the Old Testament saints, anybody who is in the first resurrection, the resurrection to light, blessed and holy is he. Over him, over those, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. But cursed and contempt everlastingly will be those who are raised in the second resurrection. The term resurrection is used to both the righteous and the wicked. So listen, everybody gets a body in which to spend eternity. Now I had here all kinds of implications and applications and everything that I wanted to draw out of that. And so we'll just pray that Jess is sick for another week. And, <laughs> and we will we will pick it up next week. Right there, and we'll talk about cremation, and we'll talk about um, all of the other stuff that kind of goes with this. So you kind of got that in your mind now, and I'm sorry that that was such a fast... Maybe I'll never do that again. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to you for this day and for what we've been able to look at here, even though it has been rather quick. We pray that you would settle these things into our hearts and minds and give us a love for you and an adoration and worship of you, which is worthy of all that you bless us with in Christ. Thank you for these good things and the hope that we have in a bodily resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.